Welcome back to the How Humans Work podcast. This is bonus episode number five. My guest host today is Brent Mac McKinnon from episode 24. You'll see here the invitation he made to be the interviewer and for myself to be the interviewee. It's a wide-ranging conversation between an elder and a middle-aged man about life, poetry, writing, family, soul, death, stress, and more. Enjoy the show. Here we go. Testing, testing, earth to the doctor. Are you in? All right, I'm going to have to use some notes because uh, you told me to. Well, I said, did you have your questions clear? Well, I can't remember them all at my age. Talking to the mic a little bit more? Yeah, this morning we're uh, changing the uh, role reversal with yeah. interviewing the, the interviewer. Yeah, good. All right. Good. I'll start it, and I'm going to introduce you as my guest host, and then uh, you can introduce me as your guest. How's that sound? That was my thought. Yeah? Okay. Okay, we're recording. I got my mic is working. Your mic is working. Yeah, I think we're good. All right. Welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I am your host, Jeff Z, and I want to introduce today's guest host, Brent Mac McKinnon. Brent, welcome to the show, and thanks for being the guest host today. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to a role reversal and putting the interviewer in the hot seat. All right. That's what we're doing. So I am your guest. You are the guest host, and this is the How Humans Work podcast. Let's go. Okay. Uh, Jeff and I have known each other from our poetry group, where we met and continue to do so. Jeff, you interviewed me recently for your podcast, after which I asked you if you had ever been interviewed, and here we are. The information and impressions I have of you are derived mostly from our poetry and behavior in the group, which at times are questionable. (laughs) And I know you're courageous because you volunteered to take the job of timekeeper, which often means cutting passionate poets off in mid-metaphor. So let's jump in today, Jeff. Are you ready? I'm ready. I hope I'm ready. We'll find out. Jeff, you're a husband, a father, acupuncturist, mentor, and poet. Is there something something else on your resume that viewers and listeners would like to hear about? That's a great question. Um, you know, I've uh, I'm writing a book, so author author in training would be the other thing on my life resume. A uh, soccer file. Most people know I love soccer. I'm very passionate about the sport. I played when I was a young man or a young boy for a few years and then turned to American football. And then after years of, you know, Qigong and Tai Chi and not lifting anything heavier than a, uh, a acupuncture needle, I turned to CrossFit and soccer in my late thirties to kind of reclaim a bit of, um, vitality. Yeah. All right, let's get real, Jeff. Who is your favorite Premier League team in <laughs> in Europe? Manchester City. Uh, the working man's team, of course. I should have Not guessed. so much anymore. I've I've been a, a fan of Manchester City for about 11, 12 years. Um, when I first started watching the Premier League, it became accessible more to American audiences um, on computers and streaming. So um, 
I was searching around and I liked David Silva and I liked Yaya Toure right away. And so they built my affection and then KDB and Foden and some other players have come along to keep it going. Well, uh, Dr. Jeff, celebrity worship is far different from living in Manchester. Have you been there? I have not. All right, let's move on. (laughs) Okay, Jeff, uh, what led you to focus on human stress syndrome and the importance of psychological transformation through the different stages of life? What le- well, everything led me to it. Um, that's such a great question. What led me to focus on human stress syndrome? Do you have a, a little bit more you want to say about human stress syndrome so I know that we're on the same page? Well, it's very well uh, described in your website, and that in- incorporates all of the elements of the human body. Okay, I got where you're going. Okay. So yeah, so I would say the human stress response and is a gradual convergence between... Let's see. It's a gradual convergence between working with people and seeing stress as a common factor. People were showing up with stress, 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 getting curious. And then I got exposed. I watched like a little documentary by Robert Sapolsky about Robert Sapolsky about stress, a very kind of like stress is villain show about baboons and the negative impacts of stress. I think it was like a Nat Geo type thing or a PBS show. So that started getting me thinking, and at the same time, uh, an author and an evolutionary biologist, a guy named Daniel Lieberman, I think he's at Harvard, wrote a book called The Story of the Human Body. I caught him on Terry Gross, and I thought it was fascinating. I read that book, and I stopped thinking about my life in terms of you know just my generation or the American story or even uh, even just modern civilization, and I started thinking a lot about the actual structure of our body has a history and it's related to ancient times. I became very interested in evolution. So evolution and stress started emerging into my, um, into my, my thought, my, my, my thoughts about healing, my thoughts about well-being, and my thoughts about health. So once that happened, it kind of lit a fire for me in terms of really looking at what are the dimensions about, what are the dimensions of the human stress response system? And so other, you know, uh, there's a new science around stress, which is great. Uh, Kelly McGonigal, Leah Crum are two advocates for that. And so as I started to listen and learn about that, that began to change how I thought about stress. And I just have, I'm, you know, I'm still working on this book for about five years. It's starting to really take shape. First couple of years, I think, was recovery, like learning to develop prose skills, learning how to write and communicate and articulate what I want to say and have more mastery over it. And so now I'm really, it's really shaping up. So uh, I would say Daniel Lieberman, Robert Sapolsky, Kelly McGonigal, and a few others, in addition to the ancient Chinese healing tradition, which has always been there, which, which actually, like all healing systems, has to deal with stress, has to deal with the impact of pressures, whether it's trauma, whether it's um, physical injury from martial arts, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the, healing system of the fighting and the impact of, of martial arts is where a lot of that like trauma injury stuff came out of, of in Chinese medicine. So yeah, I don't know. How's that answer your question? Well, uh, I'm sure we'll get some feedback from the listening audience on that th- very thorough explanation. Uh, I was going to quote you, but you've just pretty much paraphrased what your mission statement is. Now, what Your listener wants to know, Jeff, if a client is in harmony with all these elements of the body, 
and stress-free, what kind of consciousness accompanies maximum health? Does personality change? Are we kinder? Are we smarter? Are we transcendent? Are we in an alpha state? What actually happens to us, Jeff? Wow. You're going heavy. That's good. Well, uh, I, I think one of the things, so the idea of being stress-free, I think we do need to be stress-free for periods of time. We need to find the pressureless part of life. Like, um, so I call it the mystic, where the mystic can transform and find the mystical state. So I would say, yeah, I like the idea of consciousness. I like the idea of mysticism. I like the idea of belonging and harmony. Um, a lot of the old Chinese poets, um, a lot of the old Chinese uh, health masters would have learned how to cultivate that state. So how we look at life when we are in harmony is different than when we're in conflict or we're in defense or we're in, we're in danger or we're in pain. Um, so I was talking with my, my book development coach, Jen, this morning about that, that the stress intelligent state or the stress wise state is variable. And so different conditions can give us a different flux where we can be under high demand and it can be great. We can be summiting a, a peak that we've always wanted to summit. I had that experience when I was 19 and I hiked uh, Mount Whitney and I think I was just in a state of elation most of the time, just the work of going up that, not super difficult, not like a mountaineering level, but just having that ascent, which was a lot of work. Um, but then there can be other forms of harmful stress, let's say neglect or, or chronic poverty where you're just undernourished or underconnected. And so that kind of stress can really impact how we think and how we approach. And so a lot of, of what makes a difference with consciousness in terms of harmony or not is, are we in a state of threat, right? Are we in a threat position? Are we in a threat consciousness, whether it's self-generated or situational? Or are we in a place of connection and opportunity and relationship? So the stress responses that come out of a related consciousness, that come out of a belonging consciousness, that come out of a participatory consciousness are not the same ones that come out of threat. And so, you know, we don't really want to confuse threats and opportunities and we want to know what side of the things we're on. We don't want to pretend like a threat is an opportunity, although it might be, um, but we want to address threats when they're there. But we don't want to lose that mystical capacity of finding uh, the pressureless, the threatless condition. And we need that. We, it's essential for us to be in harmony to, in some ways, threat brings us into a kind of harmony with our environment, you know, in the warrior side or the warrior archetype. But the mystic ar archetype, which is the way I like to look at it, is that harmonious side. So I'm throwing a lot of words at you and I'm trying to think if I've answered your question adequately. That's quite all right, Jeff. I'll clarify for the uh, listening <laughs> audience. Are you familiar with Eric Erickson and the stages of life that are related to age grouping? You know, I would say not off the top of my head, but I was exposed right. to that as a young person in uh, junior college and psychology classes. Okay, well, yeah, it, he's a classic German philosopher, therapist, and he, he pretty much breaks it up into age groups. Uh -huh. Infancy, toddler, preschool age, school age, adolescent, young adulthood, middle age, and older adult. And the accompanying states of mind and preoccupations with those stages of uh, age. In each stage, there's different types of growth opportunities or just 
stalling out and not moving forward. Yeah. Your um, practice, if someone fully embraces uh, your recommendations and applies them to their personal life, would it affect a teenager differently than a middle-aged adult, for example? You're talking about health practices and acupuncture? Yeah, if, if it's all the same practice mm. and different age groups use them thoroughly and daily, how does that uh, affect um, people who are still in developmentally growing uh, emotionally and mentally and spiritually? Does it change for a 18-year-old versus a 48-year-old? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, an 18-year-old versus a 48-year-old. Um, Does everyone who goes to the mountaintop feel the same? That's a great question. I, I Well, I, I just I, one of the things I think about stress and I think about wellness in, is that everything is particular. You know, like general recommendations. There's like, like, there's no general stress. I mean, there are general stresses in a way, but all stresses are particular because they particularly touch us in a certain way. Same thing with wellness. So the 18-year-old who, when I went 19, first time, right. I went to the mountaintop. I was like, Mount Whitney, that was pretty profound because, I mean, one of the one of the beautiful things that night was, well, she wasn't quite a girlfriend. She was an ex-girlfriend, but I went with her family. And... I was laying, we were laying next to each other and we were just watching the the stars go by and the shooting stars, the meteorites come. And I remember that night, probably in my young life, having a sensation of longing and fulfillment all at once, like a deep cosmic longing and love. And, you know, I was, I was still in love with her and it was, it was a profound participation to feel that way. So I'm sure that's still available to me going at 50 now. I go to the mountaintop. I go with my wife. I know I'm going to feel that, but I think it's going to be different. You know, it's not going to be that first time. So is longing and fulfillment simultaneously experienced speak to the duality of life or just the addiction to I want more? Yeah, let's see. Um Perhaps it was the uh, way you used those together. Yeah, no, I used them. It, 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 it's hard to describe, um, but that image comes back to me through my life, that moment on that night on the mountainside and what it felt like to be alive and, uh, you know, growing up in the suburbs. And, and so there, I would say it was an awakening, you know, it was awakening to Eros and, and it was both longing and fulfillment at the same time. It was probably more fulfillment. So yeah, maybe that could definitely initiate a kind of um, searching for sure. Um, but to the original question around health, health advice, I'm going yeah, back one okay. step, to health advice and what it means developmentally, it can only connect developmentally to where we are, is my opinion, right? Like that's where we're at. That's the position we are. That's the understanding we have. So if the mountaintop, what it means to the 18-year-old or the different 18-year-olds it can only mean what it can mean to that person in that moment in the context of what they know in their lives, I think. That's kind of my sense where right. if I hike the mountain now at 50, it's not going to feel the same. It's going to be a different— Why not? Oh, it's going to be a Isn't different ecstasy, journey. ecstasy a, a state of const, constancy? Yeah, I don't know. Is that what you think? Let's go back to you, Jeff. <laughs> I don't. Uh, I don't. I don't know if I have the answer right, to that one. Jeff, Mac. let me ask you this. Yeah. 
Uh, a person who has had many peak experiences similar mm. to the one you just described. Yeah. Does ecstasy become ordinary? I mean, if it's commonly available to some, someone who's climbing the mountain frequently, yeah. is it just a mountain or is it a communion with the divine? Maybe uh, you should go back there, Jeff. I know. I got to find out. I got to go do a little research. Um, yeah, I, I'm just thinking about high, high states that I've had in my life and how they impact me and places of ecstasy and, and just like there's different kinds of ecstasy or different kinds of bliss. Okay, Jeff, I'm tricking you here. Let's move on. Okay. Okay. You got to watch out for that. Let's get back to your uh, career as an interviewer ah. and a podcaster and your many interviews. Has anything gone terribly wrong? And if so, how? Yeah, things have gone wrong. Um, usually if I, like I've had an interview where I interviewed an old high school friend and I was too caught up and I didn't publish this one, but I, I really liked him. I liked the conversation, but I was too, we were reconnecting and I wanted to talk about, it was a father's interview. His father's story is really great, but I didn't handle the interview well. I was too caught in my own memories of our relationship. Um, other times I've looked for, maybe a certain validation around some of my ideas or thoughts. So if I come in and I start t talking about those things that I'm interested in too much, it can go poorly. I've had some like interview with people in my first season and uh, just characters, you know, and like, I was like, okay, that's, that's, that was intense. Was, uh, I'll just be honest. It was Robert Trivers, um, who's a famous uh, evolutionary biologist. And mm -hmm. I, it was like my third or fourth interview. And I was like, I kind of looked, it was, it was so interesting because the season one was about fathers and this was the guy of the father of parental investment theory. And I was expecting a level of um, sensitivity and growth that would match my sense of parental investment theory. And and what I, did you get? I'd got, uh, I got somebody who was very raunchy and raw. You know, he started the conversation with uh, a tale about the local uh, slave owners and lovers leap in Jamaica and, and, and illicit sex. And it was like, okay, that's not how I'm going to start the show. So I did it out. It so wasn't... he had a, an ego separate of his, uh, intellectual knowledge. Well, yeah, he definitely had an ego separate from his intellectual knowledge. And I don't think he, you know, he's, he's, he's a good hearted man. And I think there's some things that were unreconciled and that were still, still playing out there. But I went looking for, I was expecting when I come in with expectations, and I'm looking for something that can definitely color how an interview happens. It sets but us up for disappointment frequently. It does. It does. I imagined it to be more. I imagined it to be further along and in some way that was closer to my sense of psychological development and growth. Um, you know, his brilliance, his, his intellectual brilliance is, is unmatched. He, he changed the field of evolutionary biology and psychology with three or four papers back in the 70s when he was in his early 20s or 30s. Right. Jeff, do you need to see yourself reflected in others to value them uh, more wholly? Probably, probably. I think I probably have a bias. I probably do that, but not necessarily. Yeah, I think well, I have. We, we all do. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Like, I'm not going to, like, deny that, like, if somebody reminds me of me and I'm, I like that part, I'm going to be more, oh, yeah, that's, that's resonant. No, um, I have to apologize to the listening audience because Jeff has used the F word, father. <laughs> so we're going to go there now. Are you yeah. ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right, Jeff, you recently escorted a group of boys on a camping trip. Yes. Here in wealthy Marin County. Correct. With the intention of mentoring them in a rite of passage of some sort. 
some sort. What happened, Jeff? So we went up to the mountains, uh, two leaders, myself, one of them, an elder, and four youth, four sons. And uh, we did a lot of like fishing, hanging out, games, laughing, um, some hiking, and a little bit of solo time. Go, they, they did want it. I wasn't sure if they were going to want it. Gave them some time to reflect on their eighth grade year. And we talked a lot about friendship and the difference between friends in this group that we've had for two years and friendship they have in the schoolyard or in their, their lives. Uh, that was illuminating. And then the, the really beautiful part whenever mentoring work happens is to bring it into the family context. So we came home on the Sunday night and we let the youth share and kind of tell stories about their time. And, you know, they're bantering with each other and the parents can kind of get a sense of what's going on with them. But then we had a chance for the parents to say some things to them. And everybody was really in this group. It was in the East Bay, actually. It's kind of a blend, San Francisco, East Bay, and, and Marin. To see those boys, those young developing men, know that there's a group of adults consciously holding what's in front of them in their development of eighth grade knowing that we just had a conversation the week before all the parents of remembering what eighth grade was like and what eighth grade felt like. And all right. Was there any um, test in the classical sense of a rite of passage? Yeah, I think being alone for, it wasn't very long, right? We're still, these kids are still developing, but just giving them an hour right. to be alone. But not not any overt test. We didn't create a, quote, rites of passage in this particular experience. Right. Still Was there young. a welcoming home ceremony and a debriefing of what they might have experienced with the elders in their yeah, community? So we did, so that was what the parent part I was just telling you was kind of a debrief. Um, and we did share some of the dimensions of talking about friendship and what the group means. Um, so I would say it's more like baby steps, not full rites of passage. I would say it's like mentoring, practicing the experience of being seen. So that night on the Saturday night after they did their solo time, um, we had them each talk about what, what it was like. And we took turns as leaders and commu- and other youth and elder just reflecting back to them some of their capacities. So I would say, you know, rites of passage light, like just giving them the flavor. This is what the tomato tastes like. You know, this is what the salad tastes like. All right. Like. This yeah. brings up my follow-up question. Yeah, great. Uh, some groups do a yearly trip. Yeah. As the boys grow, uh, the same boys. Correct. With a different or the same location. A friend of mine here in the county uh, did 12-year-old boys for the following six years until they were 18. Is that Dave Talamo? That's Tom Pinkson. Okay, Tom. Okay. Do you have any intention of doing a follow-up? So... Dave Talamo and I, uh, from Wilderness Reflections, he does a lot of eco-psychology work and outdoor leadership and uh, guiding work for decades. Uh, we, he was involved with Stepping Stones, and we did a group for six years. Boys started in seventh grade. We took them on a vision quest at the end, of their, at the end of their senior year. In fact, a few of us just hung out the other day. They're in their early 30s. So I have these, this whole cadre of young men who are in their late 20s and early 30s who I, when I was really active with Stepping Stones that I've mentored, that I still have relationships with. So I have done a six-year group. A lot of them have been three and four years, two years. This, these guys are going to eighth grade. I'm committed through the end of eighth grade. And honestly, one of the reasons is there's one youth in particular who I think having this experience matters to him and his long-term development. And so I'm committed because of that. That one particular kid, I think it makes it all really, really important where I think the other kids would do well 
as well without it. What happens in the intervening year? Anything? You go on June 12th every year. Oh, we meet once a month. We, Wonderful, we, because yeah. uh, as you know, the guru says once the snake has shed its skin, you can't put it back on. Mm-hmm. So if boys experience uh, inner uh, change and a taste of revelation and they go back to the schoolyard of adolescence where everybody's nuts, it can be uh, awkward particularly if they want to embrace uh, growth in that new part of themselves. So I'm glad you're doing the once-a-month follow-up. Yeah, we, we've been doing once-a-month with two years with these guys. We've done, I think, three summer, or, see, two or three summer trips now. So uh, that brings to the, our discussion. Uh, yeah. What do you feel is missing in American culture for boys on the West Coast besides a rite of passage? Yeah, uh... I think it depends. I mean, West Coast is a lot, you know, of, of you know, there's the urban side, there's the rural side. Wow. I mean, I, th- I think a lot for kids, the urban is the, the, the freedom and the safety to go out and just explore the neighborhood, to go explore the back country, the back roads, to kind of get that deep immersion in a world that's not defined by cultural rules of say your parents or your school system or, or the local sports club and really find that other window, that other portal. I know I had that. I had that where I just go across the field or I'd go into the national forest. And, uh, when I moved more suburban, when I was older, it was, it was less there. So are you suggesting that a farmer or a rancher, who lives in the back country and goes hunting and fishing and starts a fire with sticks is somehow more in tune with the ancient than suburbanite. Than hanging out on TikTok. <laughs> well, yeah, probably. It doesn't yeah. mean that. Uh, no, I mean, I'm going to answer my own question. Great. But, yeah. Um, people in the back country have their own set of challenges, even though they're in touch with nature and the basics of life. They're yeah. not necessarily higher consciousness characters. So I, I think that there is the opportunity. I mean, I think ancient energies are everywhere, right? That's back to what I said about Daniel Lieberman's book. The ancient energy of the evolution of the human body is in you, is in me, is in everybody listening, right? And so whether you're scrolling TikTok <laughs> or you're making a fire while you're hunting and fishing, that ancient energy is there in some way. Now, do we do we wake up to it? Are we conscious of it? Is is it part of our our sense of what this world's about, or are we lost in a, a personal narrative or a cultural narrative about getting grades, right, or something like that? Or um, so ancient energies are always with us, but I do think that there is a in the open spaces of the big country, the sky and some of those primal activities, there is a more immediacy. I think there's a kind of, it, it, it fits the body a little bit better. It, we taste, I think there's an opportunity to taste it. I'm not saying necessarily that, you know, yeehaws and, and beer drinking down by the river on the swimming hole on the hot summer day and, and you know, the, the red part of the state. Okay, but, you didn't take the bait. Let's move on. <laughs> okay, what am I missing? No, you, no you're, it's well taken. For example, we are presently sitting in a beautiful spot. Yeah, but it's only twelve feet wide. It has a fence uh, behind us, a house in front of us, and uh, a wooden deck. And our feet are not on the earth. So, 
Shall yeah. we move on? Sure. Okay. You're the host. <laughs> Don't forget that. No, I haven't. And I think you're doing a fantastic job, by the way. I'm like, dude, this guy's delivering. All Keep right. going. I'll, Keep going. I'll decide that. All right. Okay. All okay. Right. Yeah. So uh, manhood is a theme in the men's groups many of us participate in. And I wonder this morning if you have arrived at some sort of definition as to a mainstream, middle-class, civilized suburbanite in a modern culture. How do we know we are men? I don't have any answers for anybody else. I have my own answer of what makes me uh, a man that I feel good about. Well, let's hear it. Yeah. I think for me, uh, like I would say my regressive mode is because of my my childhood, the C word, uh, to try to... Um, really have a, a high contact, loving relationship with my wife. And, and so I'm very interested in issues of mating and the mating experience. And I'm interested in like the care part of the system uh, because of my experience with my father and some of the things that I found, I don't know, difficult about development, maybe one of the Erickson stage, maybe something there is frozen. Um, it's harder for me to... Uh, as creative as I am to engage in an adult way with my responsibilities around certain dimensions of, a, of, of being an adult, meaning like just getting super financial clear or investing in certain things that aren't about just do I feel good in my relationships? Do I feel good in life? And so for me, where I'm at this summer, 2022, is really recognizing that I need to balance my adaptive issues of, okay, just trust in your security and your relationship. Don't overfocus on that and balance that with other efforts in a more confident way. So when I do that, I know I'm a, I'm a more balanced man. Um, I don't know if that makes sense for other men. I think for some men, it's probably the other way around. And I see this in my practice and men that I work with where they've been so focused on the adaptive power of being a resource generator that they lose qualitative relationships and emotional intelligence. I started the complete opposite and I'm working, my growth development is working the other way. Well, um, your love for family, your wife and your daughters is uh, often a theme in uh, poetry that I've been fortunate enough to hear. And uh, it sounds like you've, you've got that part of your life functioning well and uh, enjoyed by all. Yeah, I think Today, this week, this month, I would say yes. <laughs> but, you know, right now we're just going through a passage. My daughter's leaving for college tomorrow, and that's a whole thing. And But the truth is, and this is why I'm interested in stress. I was driving over today. I'm like, it's really interesting. I'm interested in passages and stress and fatherhood and mating. Like, all these things are really interesting. Um, and I don't think it's an accident because I think it does reflect some level of where I'm at in my life. But my stress point is I get more isolated than I need to be. I go around and I still carry maybe an Erickson fixation. I don't know uh, too much of an isolation. And I, I really started to see that more clearly this summer. I'm like, okay, all right, that's what's going on. I can work with that. I can affirm and communicate and voice, you know what? I'm feeling isolated right now and it's not working. And I need, I need to be in, in, and I need you to know that Alice, or I need to tell this to somebody. And, and then for me, it turns out communication is a really important, like voicing and talking it out. 
as well as touch and connection are really two ways that I reset my stress response when I'm feeling overly isolated because I got in my head or because the world's just hard for me for well, whatever Jeff, reason. Much of your work uh, is with other people, one-on-one or in a poetry group or interviewing. Yeah, or mentoring and, youth. And yeah. other activities. Yeah. Yeah. And it's often uh, intense, I'm sure, given my impression of you. Don't you think you need to be isolated to regenerate? Yeah, I would say solitude. I would say isolated is okay. a little bit more of a All disconnected, right. not belonging right. feeling. But yeah, I do I do need solitude and I, I've I've come to realize I am more of an introvert. Um, like I would rather on a Friday night chill at home, take a bath, listen to Kirtan music and, and find my center than go out to uh, some kind of party or club most of the time or music. Well, um, good luck with achieving balance at this stage of life. <laughs> You've got a lot going on. Uh, how far before your second child goes off to college? Three three years. Three years. All yeah. right. So you've got a foundation that's firmly established. Do you, have you speculated how your relationship with your wife might change once uh, there's just the two of you? Yeah. Um, I, I've thought about that because when we go away and we have time for just ourselves, it's easier for us to get into our courting energy, right? Into our courtship. And so that's always generally beautiful and valuable. And like, for me, that seems to be a key of success for marriage is to remember that the courtship's not over. We're still alive. We need to, I need to have a dance with her at an emotional level and myself as emotional level where it's like, we're important to each other. All right. Before too many years, you won't have to go away. Away right. will be right here. That's exactly where I was going. That's where right. I was going. Well, you won't know till you arrive. True. But yeah. you asked me if I speculated. So I suspect that it'll, <laughs> they'll, they'll, it'll be easy for, easier for us to collaborate because what happened was when Abby arrived, and then Mirabelle arrived and my wife went back to work. Suddenly there was a division of labor. Sure. And the division of labor dynamic created all sorts of new dynamics and tensions in our relationship that sometimes could make the more of the courting quality harder to find. Plus she probably made more money than you. You think? <laughs> uh, I guess. Yeah. Given at time, at times, at other times, no. It's a pieces yeah, of information yeah. I've gotten. From at other you. times, no, but uh, definitely since the since COVID really shifted my business, and she up leveled her her work level. So I don't know where our number is at right now, but yes, All she right. does. I'm yeah, I'm not going to put you on the spot. And you already it, did. It's too late. It's not. Uh, you're a human being, and it's not an issue for you. Who washes the dishes and who dries? <laughs> you really. That's interesting. Well, I hope not. Well, my wife and I are actually talking, just to get honest about it, we were talking that a lot of our conflict centers around the kitchen and for different reasons. how does play out? Well, it's too long <laughs> to get into it. That could be its own episode, but we were, we were having an issue around the kitchen, and it was like, oh, this is interesting. Our whole relationship, even when we were dating, it seemed to be like a core place where it's harder for us to find harmony. It was competition. Uh, yeah. How no, about driving? I think it's expectations. Driving, it's easy. We'll take All turns. Right. We'll take turns. A long road trips, I'll tend to be the driver, like, but local ones. There's no, I'll, honey, stop. You're going too fast. You turn left here. Nah, uh, no, she, no, no. Oh, well, let's see. <laughs> I did send her a meme. There is a little bit of that. Sometimes there is a little okay. bit of that. Yeah, yeah. That's a classic that I've witnessed no. over decades. Alice is great. She's great. She can be pretty. I mean, she's more Aries. <laughs> She's more direct and kind of like can be impatient. She's an Aries? 
uh, astrological sign. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like the, the, the initiation energy. So, so am I, by the way. Are you? But I'll take it easy on you. <laughs> no, you just keep going. I said, like we said before the show, this is a stress test. Bring it on. Well, let's see. I got more questions here. If, if they're not stressful enough, we will go deeper. Sounds good. Yeah. All right. We have a contract. Uh, here we go. How do you feel about the use of multiple pronouns and gender designators finding their way into uh, common uh, usage in uh, this area? It makes me feel older. Um, makes me feel a little outdated at times. Well, well said. Yeah, I I, I kind of get it. I I get the the flexibility and I I I appreciate it. And then I think some of the stuff around it is more like the expectations. It, it's like that with any progressive thing. It's not just the progress or the new idea, but it's the relationship around sharing the new idea or being in the new idea. So, you know, like I have uh, clients in my, my city practice who are non-binary and I've, they've been able to tease me and I've really learned a lot about that, which has been, which has been great exposure for me because it's harder with just abstract, but knowing of some people who are non-binary and knowing that I care about them and love them helps me ground in it. So that's been, that's been good education for me. So how do I feel about it? I feel mixed. I feel open and I feel like it's sometimes a struggle and there's some things that I don't like about the way it's implemented or, or communicated. Um, but if it doesn't apply to your personal life and it's just the parade passing in front of you, does it, does it affect what? you in any way? No, no, no. Uh, uh, it's more of how we communicate with differences in the culture, gender pronouns or anything. And Do you it's, use them? Yeah. Do I use them? Yeah. Yeah. There's quite a few, Jeff. I have I mean, no I, idea what the hell they mean. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I know all of them, but all like right, the okay. they, them are, is the most readily accessible in my mind. So there might be more that I'm, I wouldn't say I'm super educated in it. Um, but uh, years ago with Stepping Stones, we did a really nice training. One of our um, rest in peace, Danielle Glad, uh, she brought in a training on it and it was really helpful cool. to kind of see gender plurality. And so I have a lot of appreciation for gender plurality. I think my, my not like part of it is how we communicate as a culture about change and differences where sometimes I think on any side, it, I just don't like it. I think that's a core problem we have as a culture is how we deal with our differences, not so much that we have them or they're there. Amen, brother. Amen. Okay, uh, there are examples of man. Are there examples of manhood in history? Christ or Achilles or something in between that you resonate with? Do you have a role model, Jeff? Who do yeah. you think of when you think of a fully developed man? I'm not like a deep human history, uh, like cultural history, civilized history buff. Um, so I don't hang on to a lot of that. Um, and then I'm thinking about it and thinking about, well, you know, there are different figures, but from the, the Chinese influence and the poets and the doctors, right? There's lots of different versions of manhood and what it means. Yeah, I don't have one. I, you know, honestly, what comes to mind is um, contemporary. I think a lot of my more direct imprints matter to me more than, than historical ones in terms of manhood. Because I don't, it's hard for me to see manhood in history um, or even really necessarily care about it as manhood. Um, but in terms of being a full adult, being a human, being a male, um, cisgendered male, I, 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 it's more, it's more 
people around me in this in my time and my exposure. All right. Yeah. You take us one at a time. Of who who matters to me? Who's sitting in front of you and who matters? Yeah, and- yeah. I mean, obviously my father, you know, complicated relationship. I've talked about that in the fatherhood season podcast, Bill Salaji. Did you um, put him on a interview? No, he died in two thousand three. He was fifty eight. Um and we, we had what was good about my relationship with my father is um we had a really good last few years and we had a really good dying process. Like being with him as he died um was everything. They might have been the six best best days I had in my life with them. You know, concentrated, focused. There was so much about it that was good. Um, and then I would say Kent Pierce, who died this year, Kent Ross Pierce. Um, he pretty much adopted me when I was 19, uh, my first men's group. He was a massive influence on my life. He brought rites of passage work to me. That was super profound. A brother out of um, uh, Chicago, Brother Joe Kilkevich. He, you know, he was different. He was like dances of universal peace and singing and praising and like a lot of mystic energy, a lot of beloved energy. Um, so he was, he was important to me. Um, and then two mentors, actually they were a couple, James Stewart, Ed Mopin. Ed was an Esalen Rolfer back in the early seventies and is like the oldest Rolfer around. He's in his eighties now. And, uh, Ed and James, I lived in the same house, the Envision house down in San Diego and that going to bodywork school, helped me reconcile the violence in the household, the, the aggressive, like Eastern stern European kind of like physical stuff that happened when I was young. And so I was able to heal my body in some way or heal the sense of touch and connection. And so that was pretty transformative. And James was a, like a Jungian and a, a body worker and just a Santre and just had so much soul and imagination. And, um, and then Michael Mead. I know him well. Yeah. Yeah, Michael has been uh, less direct. I mean, we've had, obviously, I've been at his retreats and we've had some other personal time, but he's so kind of um, visionary and broad culture. I, I try not to call on that relationship too much, but he's been um super profound uh, teacher intellectually and uh, and vision, like his what he holds and how he rocks and rolls is, is pretty impressive. He's a great storyteller. Um, what's your uh, feeling about... For example, we're in Marin County. Many of uh, the people we know go shopping and appropriate other cultures for their well-established rituals and practices and beliefs, even religions. Are we so lost and culturally disenfranchised that we pirate, forgive me, other people's culture? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think if we're honest with our culture and we look at it, it particularly, I hate to use the phrase, but white culture um, or capitalist culture and transactional culture, that that there are those trends. I do think I see that a lot. Um, I don't think everybody's coming from that place. You know, I think there's real sincerity, and I think there's also uh, miseducation around how to be in relationship with culture. Um, because we don't have it. I remember when I was, this is a good story. I was in, uh, let's see, I was 95. I was in, I was in college and I was with the circus of kind of a local performance troupe. Essentially we were stilt walkers and theater actors and costume wore costumes. And we went to Ireland for a, a, a tour and it was in August and we were at this mill at the mill. I forget which County it was in, but we were there and there was a bunch of Irish people there and they were singing and it was like the songs they had were their own. Right. And us like, you know, eccentric travelers, like all the songs we had were borrowed, 
you know, we had some American songs, but we didn't really have the same. And, and, and there was a pain in kind of witnessing that in the contrast between actually having an intact culture. And so that's the one thing I really, really respect about Judaism and the Jewish culture is the way they've stewarded that relationship generationally. And I've seen a lot of uh, good traditions and connection around that. Well, Jeff, of course, the Jews and the Irish have been around for a long, long time. And with the exception of Australia, white Australia, we're the youngest culture on the planet. And uh, given our time of technology and our division of atomic families, it's challenging to find agreement on just about anything. Maybe a song now and then. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's why I think it's better to focus on subculture a little bit because it's more accessible. It's more local, you know, and what's the subculture locally for you, Jeff? Well, I, am one of my subcultures. I'm in the soccer culture here. The soccer culture. Yeah. 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 I, I know a lot of people I wouldn't know if I didn't play soccer. And like I soccer go soccer teams have songs. They do. The, the, the traditional ones, Manchester City has songs, right? So there's, you know the words, Jeff? I do not. I do not. Well, you're not really a fan. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Take me down. Take me down. <laughs> Keep taking me down. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but I, I did have a chance to see one uh, live Manchester City game in London uh, back in 2018. But, uh, so I got, a, I got a feel for it. It's hard to get a feel for it. And honestly, I'm not so interested in, in that level. But, um, but soccer is a subculture. And like the, the community of people who play and, and knowing them and then seeing, you know, the restaurant or the store or here or there and just, you know, or running into them in the financial district and like all people from all different economic, racial backgrounds, national backgrounds are brought into the sport. And there, there's a little web there. Jeff, you, yeah. you've spent the last oh, 18, 20 years with three women in your home. Yeah, well, now they're women. They weren't. Well, they three, weren't when we started. Yeah, three, whatever the pronoun is these days. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that's shaped you to a large extent? Yeah, no, it's helped me grow so much. So grateful. I was telling my daughter, I'm really glad to be fathers of daughters, a father of two daughters, to my daughters. Well, as you know now, on a very deep level, fathers and daughters have a special bond. Mothers and sons have a special bond. It sounds like that was part of your life. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think that, um, I think, let's see, what do I think? Um, the, aside from the bond and the kind of, um, you know, cross gender, like as far as I know, both my daughters are completely cisgendered and, and sexually oriented that way. Um, that, that, you know, I am that, that mirror for that masculine male energy. And, and so, um, that is a special role. Right. And I think that's part of, part of the bond, but beyond that, growing up with three brothers and, and having a very kind of chaotic, active, rambunctious home more than not, um, that it was a revelation for me to witness, daughters, girls becoming from all the different stages of, of development and to see the savviness, the intelligence, the, the care, the creativity, um, forms of different forms of power, sometimes physical, um, sometimes, uh, emotional, 
And so having that opportunity to, to learn at the, at the, on the feet's not the right word, but in the presence of, of girls and see that, um, has been a gift. I think I'm a better person. I think I'm a better man because I see not just girls at a peer level or mother, but watching it from a nurturing point of view. How do I nurture and what's going on there rather than, you know, am I attracted to that or how am I connected to that on my level as a man, you know, relationally, or um, what do I receive from a mother or a mother-like figure and to, to be in that, that nurturing role of the feminine. Jeff, do you think love has a gender? Uh, no. Okay. Yeah. We'll move on. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes I'm confused when you make those transitions. I'm Aren't like, okay. <laughs> uh, what is, what is the secret to a, a happy marriage, Jeff? Um, I think communication. What? Honesty and communication. Has that always been possible for you? No, no, it's not always been possible for me, but, uh, in every moment, but eventually it comes around. And I, I have to say, I, I do feel blessed because I think my wife has a, a wide heart of compassion and she can, even though she, you know, she has her needs and her perspective, she can get my condition and my, my psychology in a way that's helpful for me. So, yeah. All right. Um, how would your wife describe you? <laughs> uh, well, she described me the other day when we were having some conversations. She's complex. I'm a complex person. How would you describe Jeff? Uh, <laughs> no, I agree. I'm complex. Um, and I think it's a fair word. I mean, I think we all have complexes too, but I think my complexes are, are complex. Um, but I would describe myself as uh, outgoing, uh, po- positive towards other people, caring, sometimes uh, shut down, uh, a little ignorant about aspects of life, a little myopic. Um, I would say that um, I can be intense, particularly in a competitive way, but I'm bold. I, I like, I, I can have bold, courageous energy and I can have, you know, coward's not the right word because it's not really fair, but a little bit of uh, stress avoidant aspects going on. I see myself as someone who has a rich emotional tapestry and that doesn't necessarily know what to do with it all the time. Well said. What makes you angry? Oh, let's see. What makes me angry? I know you're quite capable of it, Jeff. Yeah, no, it's true. I was, it was funny. I was, I was tuning into what makes me angry. And I think like when I get pissed off on the soccer field, um, (laughs) I think I'm actually, I can be a jerk. I can definitely be a dick on the field. But um, I think it's when other people are unjust towards other people. I think that there, I think there is a principle underneath my anger. And I think it's a little bit the unjust towards other people. For instance, what is unjust? I'll I'll, I'll give you an example. I went to a festival recently and I, I found myself being judgmental of this musician in this little circle singing a song and the song was about having too much stuff. And I was thinking about my friend Duanovan, who's serving some time right now, and thinking about some people I've had the opportunity to meet from uh, Watts and the projects in Watts. And it bothered me so deeply. I was so offended and so angry at the kind of singing a, a song about a funny song about having too much stuff, which is a condition of affluent people and, and American people and capitalist people. But it hurt me because I was—I just felt so um, that injustice of 
the inequities of society of opportunity. Um, yeah, it's a pet peeve of mine, and I get really angry about that. But Jeff, that that's everywhere. Maybe you need some acupuncture. <laughs> you asked me what I got angry about, okay. but yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Man, I do need You're to getting treat, angry right now. I, I need to trigger my. I need to treat my liver channel, as we would say. My liver cheese <laughs> stagnating. Beautiful. I can't argue with that. What are your three personal strengths, Jeff? That's a really interesting question. It, you know, it's uh, it can't be clear perception of myself because I don't always have it. What do um, you but I actually do. Actually, in some ways I do. I think I have a fairly sophisticated sense of, at times, not always, it's a flux thing, but I have a fairly sophisticated, uh, intuitive kind of emotional awareness system. Oftentimes I'll communicate and I'll reflect things to people and they'll say, can I write that down? You know, so I think I have a way of languaging experience that, and that's probably why podcasting is natural for me, is a natural expression. And then a third strength of mine would be uh, probably care for other people. Well, you certainly have an athletic vocabulary and mind. Thank you. And uh, anybody who's been around you for more than three minutes will certainly pick up on that, and I'm glad you're here. Yeah, I would say one thing about that, though, that I think, I don't know if where this where the chicken or egg here is, but I think I, I struggled a lot with English in middle school and high school. Like and English? Uh, English courses, writing, essays. Writing. Um, I actually didn't learn to do that well. Writing. Yeah, writing. Yeah, and so... Not uncommon, particularly now. Partly it was ability to focus and the kind of uh, the... the I don't say attention issues, but the the social anxiety and the learning issues that came along with my early life experience. And you're still fiddling with the props on the table here, Jim. Yeah, yeah, right? Thank you. And okay. uh, wait, I Go just ahead. want to finish that because it, yeah. it was a weakness, but out of that weakness came inventiveness. And so I was more familiar writing poetry. Poetry became easier for me to communicate than actual prose. Yeah, so it actually became a strength because I started to trust my strange speech or, or my own style, and then it's become more of like, oh, people kind of in, like fresh ways of saying things, and it helps people because there's a spontaneity in, in the speech that comes out. Well, you might appreciate the, that I worked with non-literate Americans who were employed and positions of responsibility and they they disguised the fact that they couldn't read for years and years because they had developed alternative ways of retaining and applying information where writing and reading never came up in their work they would hand it off to a secretary or their wife wow. and it was an amazing uh experience to see how much data and memory these folks had, just like people in third worlds who had never seen a school. All their life is one huge memory bank, not only of what they've experienced, but what their ancestors have communicated through them, through the generations. They retain it and apply it. So you're right in there. Thank you. Okay, I'm... I'm, I'm uh, Going to get back to the questions rather than lecturing. Uh, Jeff, what are your three weaknesses? Yeah, let's see. What are my three weaknesses? Do you have any fallibility? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, let's see, three weaknesses. Um, distractibility. Definitely a weakness. Um, uh, doubt. Feeling doubt, self-doubt, situational doubt, relationship doubt. Um, not thinking things through. Okay. Yeah. Let me ask you, what do you feel your, your major accomplishments have been, Jeff? That's interesting. My major accomplishments in my life? Or today or whatever you want to share, Jeff. Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I see myself as a, a pretty ordinary human in some ways. Um, and so, I, you know, I look around, I look at what some people do, and I, I, I'm really impressed um, by their capacity. I have my hands in a lot of different layers and things, and so I'm, I think I'm pretty exploratory in some way, creatively. But, you know, obviously my daughters would be there um, but you know, there's so much their own people. It's not really my accomplishments. It's their own. That is an accomplishment, daddy. Yeah, it is. It is. And it isn't like I honor both sides of it, but that I have positive relationships with them and they, I think value my presence. Like that's probably my biggest thing that I was consistent, you know, that I, I didn't go anywhere that I was able to stay. And, um, and model for them, like, this is what a relationship looks like. And this is what staying here and being present looks like. And doing that and proving that to myself was, is huge. Um, though I don't really like wear that on my sleeve or think about it. It's more like a big picture thing. Um, but I have to say, I did, I, I've been feeling grief about my daughter going away. And now I feel a bit of, um, like relief accomplishment, like, okay, that's one, uh, that actually there's success actually happening, even though I'm going to miss her daily presence or more like every other day presence because <laughs> she's always active and around as an 18 year old. How about, um, do you have any failures, Jeff? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, we only have another half hour left, so <laughs> that's not enough. Just that's, one or two. That's, <laughs> that's not enough time. Uh, let's see. I want to stick with the, uh, successes though. Um, okay. Let me see if there's anything else that's specific. You know, when my dad died, uh, I inherited his 2002 Red Thunderbird convertible. I sold it and I converted it into investing and starting up my own business as an acupuncturist. And, Wonderful. And so that, you know, $30,000 um, became uh, a seed money. So I feel that was an accomplishment and a, a like a very adult manhood decision. Be like, I don't need a two-seater with a baby. And I do need to start a business that's been, you know, a farm for me in, in, in a way of, of generating um, income and, and, and community service. So I would say my other thing is I've really served people. Like there's, there's probably people more than I know whose lives I've touched in, in, a, in a way that's been served them. But whether it's like my knee's better or my heart's better or my, my head's clearer and, and that and definitely the mentoring work, like, to, to those, those are probably my three things. Yep. Uh, failures. Well, let's see. I think my biggest failure has been losing a sense of what my responsibility is. And I think I talked about this at the beginning or earlier in the show around losing time of seeing where my priorities are and where my head needs to be. And so the lost time of preoccupations which aren't serving my adult development or my manhood or my role in the world 
Um, I think that's probably my biggest failure is a failure to use time effectively. Do you think this might be connected to your problem with reading as a child? Yeah. So I didn't so much have a problem with reading. Like I was okay with reading, but it was more like writing essays, grammar, you know, getting sentence structure, syntax, um, those kind of things. Yeah. I would say definitely focus and distractibility. Like probably 10 years ago, I started to get honest with myself. Like, oh, I have focus issues. Like I could, I could rather than see it in terms of like, God, I'm not very functional. I feel bad about myself uh, to be like, oh, I have focus issues. And that's, that's part of who I am. So yeah, definitely. Finishing your book will be yes. a great source of... Yes, totally. It'd be a great source of accomplishment, yeah. It's like giving birth, Jeff. Then, then you have to let it go. It has its own destiny uh, immediately. Yeah. All right, here's a good question. Has anyone ever told you that you resemble a young Kevin Costner? No. Kevin Bacon. Is that who you meant? Kevin Costner. I know who you meant. I know Kevin Bacon. He's yeah. a fabulous guy. Yeah. Do you know him? He's a great athlete. No, I don't know him. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh. No, Kevin Bacon, you know, from Footloose, Kevin Bacon? Of course. Okay. Yeah. Just checking. Yeah. Uh, no, I never got Kevin Costner. I get Kevin Bacon and I get David Bowie. And if my hair's longer, I get uh, bon, jo- bon Jovi. So you're every man. Some of them. <laughs> Have you ever had a major life crisis? That's a good question. What like uh what what qualifies as major? An injury, fired from a job, breakup of a marriage, um you made a mistake with acupuncture and you blinded somebody. Or, <laughs> I'm just I'm just throwing stuff out. So that would be a horrible mistake. Oh, uh no. No, okay. No, I well. never have. Yeah. But I, I did have this, <laughs> I did have a patient who came in with back pain, a young guy. And, um, and, and then he, I, he's a friend of uh, my daughter's and then he, I didn't hear from him. And he, then my daughter told me he had a collapsed lung and I was like, damn, did I hit his lung? I've never hit anybody's lung. And I was worried and, and I had to wait for like three or four weeks, which is being like, I might've done that. And then it turned, big a hole. It turned out, it can happen. It turned out that he actually had a collapsed lung when he came in, and that yeah. was the source of his back pain, which was a relief. Because um, so I've had the emotional reality. I had of, the emotional yeah, reality okay. of like a super fuck up. Is there a, a common trait that uh, close friends in your life share? Yeah, that's a good question. Probably affection. If they're close, yeah, there's affection. There's communication and affection. Good. Wisdom, you know, like, uh, I don't really want to hang out with clowns, honestly. Clowns? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to use that. (laughs) Oh, boy. Uh, Where do you see yourself in 10 years? Oh, that's a great question. If you say that one more time, I'm going to spank you. That's a great question. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Okay. I was going to make a joke about my my kinky side starting to come out if you offer to spank me. (laughs) <laughs> don't get excited <laughs> um no i um let's see i uh that's a great question <laughs> just teasing you um yeah no i see myself radically transformed in 10 years i got really clear there's certain ways that i don't want to feel that i've felt too long in my life in terms of the isolation or other ways in terms of my capacity in the world that not going to be happen they're not going to be happening in 10 years 
and I have a practice. It's a little private right now, but I have a practice of which I'm using and I don't know exactly what those outcomes are, but I know that the higher degree I value each day and give value to each day, I know where I'm going to be in 10 years is going to be profoundly different. Beautiful. If you can sustain it, it's paradise. Yeah. I mean, yeah, sustain it. Well, I mean, I I have to be honest, I'll, I'll accept failure days, but I'm in the game. You know, there's days where I'm like, oh, that wasn't so good. But the consciousness of being in relationship with the day is the transformative practice. Here's an easy one. Uh, do we have a soul? Yes. Is there a divine being? Uh, yes, absolutely. What happens after death? Whatever you think is going to happen. So free will carries over after death. I think so. No, um, so we, we're creating our own. I, I mean, I wonder. Life. I wonder if we can't be at some level be generating what after what afterlife happens. I don't. I don't know. But um, I will say that um, I did do a, a a certain substance one time in my life, and I had probably the most direct encounter with the divine being. Not as in like shiny or light or special, but just awesome presence. And it was quite an encounter. And I would say that unquestionably there is a presence in, in this universe um, that is here with us. I'm not sure what that presence does after this life. Sometimes I honestly think that there is no afterlife. I think we have a soul now and the bodily soul dies and it's done. And, and, uh, and maybe that's just it. Maybe it's just it. But, um, other times, like it's easier for me to see, and I'll, I'm going to go a little deeper on this one if you give me a minute. Sure. Um, it, like I can see afterlife easier for other people in some way or after energy, but it's sometimes harder for me. Like sometimes I'll get panicky. Like I'll just think, yeah, I'm going to be gone. And that, that extinguished, that abyss of being extinguished is, is you know, uh, sometimes it makes me a little panicky at night. I'll be like, okay, this is my life. And at some point, it's, um, I don't know, it's it's over. I mean, when it's over, it's over. This is over. <laughs> but according to you, we have a soul. Yeah. And um, do you feel that free will is a blessing or a curse? Let's see. Do I feel, f- yes, I do. I think of both those things. Yeah, and I'm not sure 100% convinced on free will either. You know, I can see uh, all sorts of programming going on all the time, both from my imprints of my family, but evolution yeah. or evolutionary imprints of drives that are, I wouldn't say like I have free will. I mean, I get to try to like modulate them or find a way to, you know, adapt them into the world I'm given. Um, but I don't know that it's like, everything that I feel that I think I want or desire is um, choice that I'm making at a executive functioning level. It's more like the executive functioning gets to kind of like try to work with it, you know, try to ride the wave. Well, what did I do to your questions? Did I um, disrupt your flow? No, I disrupted my thought. Um, I've had a lot of speculation about the value of free will as opposed to uh, say a strict Islamic rule-based life, uh-huh. even a obedient Catholic life. 
There's a difference between belief and faith. If someone has faith, uh, it, it seems that the quality of their religious life is enhanced and constant. A belief is a political notion. Do you have Do you have faith? Yeah, I have faith. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I've seen too much not to have faith that there's something going on that I that I cannot define or brand. But I've seen miracles. I've seen the other side. In the beginning, I wanted to put language on it, and that was a mistake. I ran around telling buddies, hey, man, I saw God last night. Well, that's cool. Let's go have a beer. (laughs) If you don't have the community context to share, it it really places one in a strange place. Well, let's get back to you. Okay. Have you ever had a guru, a a spiritual teacher? Um, Yeah. Yeah, you might even know her. Her, her. her former name was Tony Varner, but she became Gangaji. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I would say there was a period of time in, in the end of college in my early uh, 20s. I, I, You know, my one of my early exposures to spirituality and religion was A Course in Miracles. Okay. Yeah, and so then when I saw Gangaji for the first time in San Diego, it was probably 1993, four. Um, I, I thought, oh, that's actually the energy of what embodied of the Course in Miracles. Okay. So kind of freedom there, kind of clarity. But that I, passed. Yeah, that yeah. passed, yep. Yeah. Those I, things do as we grow. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I've gone towards not transcendentalism, but uh, the imminence of the manifestation of the body and the world and nature as a cloak for something that's there, but not trying to like get past nature or try to get past the body like the Course in Miracles does, but to be in the body and embodied with the mysteries that, you know, that happen there rather than try to... um, The mystery is sufficient. Yeah, rather than mistrust the body. Yeah. Have you ever consumed uh, plant medicine in search of the mystic or just recreationally? Yeah, no, I've done ceremonies. I've imbibed uh, plant medicines and... um, Yes. You feel there's value in that? Yes. Yes, I think that it depends. I mean, there's different contexts and there can be problems with it like any system, right? Any sure. any tradition, especially one that's um, you know struggling to sort out the past of transactional capitalism or post-colonial or, you know, Western mind-body separations that, you know, we kind of have some issues with. In, in the Western culture. So those things aside, I think that um, in the right context, there is uh, teachings that don't show up necessarily otherwise, you know, in terms of speaking of participation with the cloak of the mystery of nature. Um, I think there's a doorway in with those plants that, that show, can show people uh, things that are helpful. It has for me. Amen, brother. Have you ever used a sacred text on a regular basis for guidance and inspiration? Well, I mean, like I said, I read The Course in Miracles and did work around that. Um, there was a period of time where I was doing some Tibetan Buddhist practice and mantras. It wasn't a whole text. But no, I wouldn't say that I rely on, I mean, we go to poets. <laughs> we can go to the poets, uh, the Duino elegies, you know. That, I would say that's probably my closest 
So you feel there's revelation possible through the written word in this, Certain in this case, written words. poetry. Yeah, I would do, yeah. The Duino Elegy. Who are some of your favorite poets? Oh, that's tough. Besides because, me. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah um, I'm humble with that. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a, a well-read person. I'm, I'm can't more, read uh, everything. No. Um, but, you know, some of the mystics, Kabir is obviously, uh, mm. I like Kabir a lot, what I've seen. Um you know, it, I like I like uh, I like Dossie's poetry quite a bit in our group. I like Dossie's poetry. Dossie Houston. Yeah, 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 I like her poetry a lot. Um, By the way, we're really good friends now. I know that. I know that. I'm gonna have her on the we're podcast. The same age, and every time we tell stories, it reminds the other person of another story. It just goes on and on. That's great. Um, yeah. Let's see. Yeah, I think it, I would I would do a misrepresentation, but I you know I obviously. Uh, uh, William Butler Yeats, um, you know David White's very evocative. Yes, His poetry is very evocative. Um, I met him once; that was interesting in Ireland back in '94. Um, I've seen him, but I like how he brings poetry alive. You know, but really the the poetry that I rely on, and it's kind of an old school uh, classic, is uh, what Hillman and Mead and Bly did with uh, the Rag and Bone Shop of the Heart. You know, like if I'm just looking for a poetry to like move me, I'll just go there. And there's usually something in there I that's helpful. Jeff, what's your prophecy for our species on Earth? <laughs> what time frame? What's your prophecy? It's my prophecy. Well, I wonder, um, you know, if, you know, we're caught between like this image of the Neanderthal and the alien and if we keep devaluing our physical body and we keep emphasizing our mental intellect that we're going to end up with little tiny bodies and, um, and uh, big heads and really sensitive vision. And, you know, maybe that's okay. I don't know, but that's obviously long-term, that's long-term kind of image. And I know it's funny. I had that idea on my own. I've heard Joe Rogan talk about it as well. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I really don't know um, where we're headed. But I think about it more with my daughters and I think about our, our you know, uh, can America can sustain itself in some way? And is, is, is the, the rule of law and cooperation going to uh, sustain? And I think if we don't find the cooperative capacity, I think we will be in a, an alpha competition thing. In some ways we already are. But um, prophecy for humanity I mean, at some point we're all going to be, the whole place is going to be done, whether it's the, the, the star or whatever. So, Too many people? I'm really concerned about population. Sure. I am really concerned about population. I'm concerned about what that's going to do at every level. And I, I don't know how we address it. I really don't. Um, and I don't know how we get our heads around it because we can't even get our heads around so many things um, together in, in, in smaller bandwidths as a society. So, yeah, population's a concern. But, you know, I mean, probably the same things that have always happened are going to happen. Revelation and destruction, you know, beauty and pain. Um, and just what doses, what proportions. My ideal, what I would like to see happen is more equity, more local sustainability, um, more, like, meaningful rites of passage community, people being brought into life, a more kind of, like, a modern indigenism, indigenous kind of feeling if possible where 
or community and connection or yeah, that it's, it's sustainable. I mean, I think if we, if, if we don't find sustainability, social and cooperative and natural resources and population balance, then we're going to have problems. Like gets back to the thing. We're going to be in, th- we're going to be in threat states, threat states and things are going to go messy. Well, listeners, you've heard it here. Prophecy and revelation of a father, a healer, a mystic, and one hell of a poet. Thank (laughs) you for listening today. It's been a pleasure putting uh, you on the hot seat, Jeff. Amen. Thank you. Again, thank you for driving over here and sitting and sharing your story. I appreciate the, the depth of thoughtfulness with your questions and, yeah, your just care for the inquiry. So thanks for having me on your, on your show today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining the show today. You can support the how humans work podcast by sharing the shows with your people, your family, your friends, your community, and you can keep it ad free by making a donation to our Venmo at HHW underscore pod. I appreciate your support. All music is performed by the incredible Chase Jackson at chasejacksonmusic.com. To learn more about our guest, the show, or Jeffrey's work helping people make peace with their human nature, you can go to howhumanswork.us.